I'd like to invite you at this time to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, making our way through this uh, letter Paul wrote. Uh, we uh, come to verses, uh, we'll, for the sermon today we'll consider verses uh, 10 through 17, but just uh, for context, uh, I'll begin reading in verse 5. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and the power that it conveys indeed it testifies to us concerning Christ Jesus, your Son, our Lord, the church's one foundation. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, I want you to consider what are the marks of a successful minister? Perhaps, uh, perhaps it is having a large church with membership in the, in the numbers of hundreds, if not thousands. Perhaps it's having a nice, uh, large church building with a sprawling campus and sev several satellite venues that you can, uh, you can broadcast your sermon to. Perhaps it's having notoriety whether it be through a radio broadcast or even television or uh, perhaps having a book on the New York Times bestseller list. These are various ways in which we seek to judge a minister's success. And these are easy for us to judge because they are tangible things. Numbers, church, uh, the, the, the size of a building, or you know, how many books you have sold or how many clicks you get on your website. These are ways in which it is easy for us with our eyes to be able to judge whether a minister is successful or not. 
And while there is nothing wrong per se with having a large church or having a nice building or gaining notoriety, these are not necessarily things by which God judges a successful ministry. Now, perhaps you're thinking, well, you're just saying that because you're the pastor of a small church that's meeting in an elementary school. And that may be the case. But our, I believe our passage today speaks to what is actually lasting and valuable when you consider an effective Christian ministry. As Paul talks about uh, the, the labors that these ministers have and how at the end of the day, their work will be judged and assessed. And so as we consider our passage, keep in mind the broader context. The Apostle Paul is correcting the Corinthians' misperception of Christian ministers in that they were taking the, the different apostolic figures and they were dividing amongst various factions, giving exclusive loyalty to either Paul or Apollos or Peter or, or whomever. And, and, and the Apostle Paul began our passage today by asking, what is Apollos? What is Paul? That is, what, is, what are their roles in building the church? And his answer was that they were mere servants. They were mere servants of the Lord who assigned to each particular tasks. But at the end of the day, while Paul planted and Apollos watered, ultimately it is only God who can give the increase. It is only God who gives the growth, and thus God alone should get the glory. And so, so Paul and Apollos, contrary to the way in which the Corinthians were acting, they were not competitors, but they were co-laborers complementing each other as they work together with the Lord in his field. But it's interesting in verse 9 how Paul, in, in one breath, will switch from an agricultural metaphor, this idea of planting and watering to, to grow a people for God's name, and he immediately switches not, uh, from an agricultural to an architectural metaphor in verse 9, where he tells the church, you are God's field, and... You are God's building. And I think the Apostle Paul is building on a very rich tradition here that we see going all the way back into the Old Testament. If you think of all of the building projects that you read of in the Old Testament, perhaps one really stands out. Of course, it's the building project of first the tabernacle and then later on the temple. Uh, as, as we're given uh, precise details of, of the, um, not only the materials that were used, but exactly how the temple was constructed. It seems that Paul has this in mind. And you keep in mind also that the city of Corinth, which had been destroyed in, I think, the 3rd century B.C., was actually recently rebuilt in 44 B.C. as a Roman colony. And so, you know, less than, than, than 100 years prior, the city was rebuilt from scratch. And no doubt there were many building projects that were still going on in the city of Corinth, as Paul talks about and, and uses this metaphor of the church being God's building that is uh, being constructed. Now, later on, Paul will use yet another metaphor to talk about the church, going from agricultural to architectural to biological when he talks about the church as the body of Christ and each of us being various members of that body. 
But while Paul's main point here is to highlight how each, mem- how each minister contributes to the overall work of the building of the church, here in our passage today, he discusses how each minister's work will be evaluated by God. So at first he talks about his ministry and his labors, and he attributes it all to the grace of God in verse 10. He says, according to the grace of God given to me. It's easy for us to forget, but the very fact that Paul was an apostle in the first place is because of the unmerited grace of God. Remember who he was before he was called to be an apostle? He was Saul of Tarsus. He was persecuting the church. And Paul actually later on will reflect upon that in chapter 15 of this letter when he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And so Paul talking about how he was called, and it was according to the grace of God that he began this labor as as a skilled master builder, literally as a wise architect. This word here is the same Greek word from which we get the English word architect. And just as today, an architect in the ancient world served as the supervisor, the overseer of a building project. And the Apostle Paul talks about how he served as this architect of the church upon, uh, where he was able to lay a foundation. Now, boys and girls, if you have ever built anything before, I used to uh, work in construction and I would build uh, block walls out of concrete blocks. But before you start piling up blocks and building it with mortar and concrete and steel, before you build up, you need to dig down and have a foundation. The most important part of any structure is its foundation. If any of you have been driving through the Lantern District in Dana Point and seen these buildings that that they're constructing, what did they do first? They dug a giant hole in the ground. They needed to, to, to put steel way down into the bedrock in order for these structures to have any, to be sound structures. And that's what the Apostle Paul said he did when he came to Corinth. He laid the foundation. And he's already told us and described what that foundation, uh, foundation lane was like in chapter two. If you just flip a page back, look there in chapter two, verse one, when he says, And I, brothers, when I came to you, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not, pla- were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so it was through the proclamation of Christ crucified, the simple, uh, uh, ornate proclamation of this message, that was the lane of the foundation. Concrete and steel isn't pretty, but it's necessary. And so is the preaching of Christ in him crucified. And so Paul talks about the fact that he laid a foundation, and now someone else is building upon it. 
This is equivalent to what he said previously when he said, I planted and Apollos watered. Well, now he says, I laid the foundation and someone else is building upon it. And so others who were currently ministering to the church in Corinth were building upon Paul's foundation. Now, this is a necessary thing in the life of any church. Whereas the Lord used me to plant Trinity Presbyterian and I'm currently ministering as its pastor. My hope and prayer is that that this church survives long after I'm gone, that others who come will continue to build up this foundation. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not going anywhere, but I want this church to outlive me, and that's what Paul's Paul's, uh, idea was, especially as an apostle. He explains at the end of the book of Romans how it is that he had never come to Rome because the gospel had already reached Rome. And Paul says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Now, there's nothing wrong with building on the foundation. Like I said, it's a necessary thing in the life of the church for one minister to succeed uh, uh, another. But Paul, as that foundation layer, as that wise architect, he's laying the foundation in all of these churches and others will build on it. But he has a warning for those people. He has a warning for anyone who would come to succeed him as as ministers in the church to build on the foundation. He says, let each take care. Let each watch himself to see what type of work he does. And he has this clear statement in verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You see, Paul wisely laid the only foundation that can be laid, namely Jesus Christ, as we saw there in chapter 2, preaching Christ and him crucified. That's the foundation of the church. In Ephesians 2, he says something very similar where he talks about the church that is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That most important part of the foundation in the ancient world was the cornerstone. And so Christ, the risen Christ, is the foundation upon which the church is built. And it is the preaching of Christ crucified and exalted that the church, that foundation is laid. To change that foundation would be to change the building altogether. So that's the first point that Paul's making is don't think that you can come in and lay another foundation. Christ is already, uh, the foundation's already been laid, and now you're building on it. But keep in mind, when you put materials, when you start a superstructure on that foundation, those materials must conform to the Christ-centered foundation. And here's Paul's point for those who are building on it. Be careful with what type of materials you use. And he gives a list of different types of building materials in verse 12, starting with what we might consider the most precious material, gold, and going to the least valuable, straw. You see, not all labor in the church has the same enduring or lasting value. And this metaphor of the different materials, whether gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, these are examples of the type of labor of the type of material that is used to build the church. And we get the idea, Paul's idea, of of the value of these materials when he goes on in verse 13 to describe how these materials will be tested by fire. 
Now, each minister's work will be tested, as he says, at the last day, and only then will it be clear and manifest what type of materials the minister used as he sought to build up the church. Now, it's interesting that elsewhere, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about the fact that all of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so there's a sense where every man who has ever lived, every man, woman, and child will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now keep in mind that for those of you who are united to Christ by faith, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you will already be glorified. You will already be justified, perfectly sanctified, and glorified before his throne so that you can be openly vindicated before all. And so we do not need to fear, as believers in Jesus Christ, the judgment, because for us, judgment has passed. And so while Paul does certainly talk about a general judgment for all to give an account for what they have done, I think here he's speaking about some, a type of judgment that is more specific. Here I think he's referring to what James, in James chapter 3, refers to when he says, "...not many of you should become teachers, my brothers." For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And so here in 1 Corinthians 3, I think that's what Paul's talking about. That greater strictness, that type of judgment that ministers of the gospel will endure as their work for the church will be tested by fire at the last day. And if after undergoing this fiery judgment, if there is anything left over like gold, like silver, like precious stones, which are just refined in the fire, they will receive a reward, Paul says in verse 14. Now, this word for reward is the same word translated wages in verse 8. And so Paul, again, is just building on that idea that, uh, that those who labor on behalf of, uh, uh, for, labor in the church will receive a reward. But keep in mind, he's not, talking in, in, he's not speaking in terms of personal salvation. Verse, five, verse 15, even those who have nothing to show at the end of the day are still saved. And so even ministers, thank God, are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Ministers do not earn their salvation because if that's the case, none of us would be saved. He's not talking in terms of personal salvation, but he's referring to the fact that God in his grace will graciously award his servants whom he has graciously worked through. And that's true of all of us. That is true of each and every believer where at the end of the day, we will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And this serves as motivation for us. As Paul will later on tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9, using a, 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 a sports metaphor, where he says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run? but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. And at the end of the day, that crown that we receive, the reward, the wages we get, are out of pure grace. God rewarding his grace with even more grace. And so that's the case for those who have something to show at the last day, something to show for their labors. But what about those who have nothing to show? 
as we see there in verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up. Now, this is, the, this is the minister who sought to build up God's church, and yet he used materials like wood, hay, and straw, and those things would be disintegrated in the fire, and there would be nothing left over. Paul says that they, that, that, that type of minister will suffer a loss. There is a sense where ministers can squander their gifts and that God's grace given to them ultimately was in vain because they used their position to bring glory to themselves rather than to God. They promoted themselves rather than promoting Christ Jesus. And I think that this will be a bit surprising for us. Now, we'll be perfectly sanctified, of course, so we're not going to gloat. But I think that there will be people who in this life had what we might consider very successful ministries, had very, pastored very large churches, had sprawling campuses, wrote New York Times bestsellers, and yet at the last day, they will have nothing to show because all of that was wood, hay, and straw. And yet there are other ministers that we have never heard about and never will, and yet I think they will be proven to have built their foundation, built upon that foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones. As Paul talks about, we'll go on to talk about in 1 Corinthians 4, that the Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. So what is the true motivation? Is it to bring glory to Christ or is it to bring glory to oneself? Now, in this case, for the minister who has nothing to show at the last day because he sought to bring glory to himself, keep in mind that, again, this is not a matter of salvation, but an an assessment of one's work before God. As we see there in verse 15, that he will be saved, as it were, through fire. Now, I think it's helpful for us to pause at this moment and to ask, how does one know whether Uh, you know, for myself as a minister or for you as a congregation who call your minister, how do you know that a minister is building with lasting and precious materials? Interesting, Paul mentions these, he lists these types of materials, but he doesn't tell us explicitly what they are. Well, keep in mind the context. Keep in mind the context. Go back to what Christ is, or what, what Paul has already told us about the foundation. It is Christ and him crucified. And so again, the materials used must conform to the foundation. Those who were in Corinth were wanting to package the gospel in this eloquent wisdom of the world. They were wanting to adopt the methods and the the rhetoric of their day and age in order to promote themselves and gain glory. But in so doing, they were emptying the cross of Christ of its power. The wisdom of this age, Paul tells us, is doomed to pass away. That message that somehow we can have glory in this day and age through our own efforts, that we can have our best life now, is a false gospel. And so if that is what is being promoted from the pulpit, then all you're getting is wood, hay, and straw. And that's going to burn away. And yet, if it's Christ and him crucified and the power of the gospel is being proclaimed, then that is what is ultimately going to last because it's built upon that sure foundation. 
And so Paul now turns in the last verses of our passage. He shifts his focus. He turns from those who, through perhaps neglect or self-interest, do not contribute significant or lasting work to the church. And he shifts to those who would actively and purposefully seek to cause damage to the church. Notice that in verse 16, or sorry, verse 17, when he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, here we see a, more, a much more somber warning. God will destroy him. But he starts this warning by reminding his readers in verse 16, do you not know, he says, Now, this implies that they should have known, and yet Paul feels the need to remind them. He'll actually do this again in chapter 6, where he reminds them, you are the temple of the living God, as he does here. Do you not know that you are the temple of the living God? Now, ever since the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church, the people of God became the temple of the living God. In the same way that at the end of the book of of Exodus, after they had built the tabernacle, and the tabernacle's constructed, it's still just a tent made with human hands. And yet at the end of the book of Exodus, we read that the cloud, the glory cloud, covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God made that tent made with human hands into his own dwelling place. And then later on, centuries later, when Solomon constructs the temple, we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Yet again, making a structure made with human hands into the temple, the dwelling place of the living God as the Lord's glory sanctified that place and made it his own. Well, that, same, that very same thing happened except uh, on the day of Pentecost, except it wasn't a man-made structure, but it was a structure made with living stones. As the Holy Spirit filled his people, as the Spirit was uh, descended upon the church, he made the church his dwelling place. And that's Paul's point here as he, as he speaks about how the church corporately is the temple of the living God. That word you in verse 16 is plural. We don't see that in English unless you're from the South. And if, in, if you were in the South, it would be read this way. Y'all are God's temple. Y'all are God's temple. That is corporately. Now, it is also true, as he tells us in, in chapter 6, that individually our bodies are a temple of, of the living God because the Spirit dwells our body, and so we ought to act appropriately. But it's not an either-or. It's a both-and where individually... The individuals are brought together as living stones to build this entire structure. So Paul reminds his readers that they are the temple of the living God. But now here comes the warning. If anyone destroys that temple, if anyone, uh, perhaps another way uh, to translate this is corrupts or defiles the temple. You see, the church can be corrupted by either false teaching or by sinful behavior. Paul will later on in chapter 5 talk about how a little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
and how this sin can spread in the life of a church, causing division and dissension and, and corruption. And if anyone attempts to destroy or defile the church, here's the somber warning. God will destroy him. And the, uh, this, this Greek word translated destroy appears twice in this verse, and they appear back to back. And so it's, it, we see this exact retribution. If somebody attempts to destroy the church, God will destroy him. This is not just having your works burned up. This is not just having nothing to show at the end of the day, but you're still saved. No, this is God's uh, executing justice and eternal punishment upon those who would seek to destroy and pervert his church. You see, God takes it personally when somebody attacks his church, which Paul knew very well. You see, the Apostle Paul at one time sought to destroy the temple. He sought to destroy the church as he was actively persecuting the church. And the Lord appeared to him and he said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He wasn't just persecuting his followers. He was, he, when he attacks, when you attack the church, you attack God himself. So he takes that personally. And then Paul has this clear statement that God's temple is holy. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle had a holy place. There was a place that only certain, only certain people, only the priests could go. And then there was the most holy place where only the high priest could go once a year. And same thing with the, with the temple which succeeded it. There was a holy place where there was restriction. Lest any, anyone come in to defile that holy place. In Paul's day, there was actually a sign an inscription that was placed in, 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 in the Greek language so that anyone can read, lest a Gentile think that he could come into the holy courts of the temple. It, it warns them. It says, no one from any other nation can enter into the, the precincts of this temple. And then it goes on to say, whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. Immediate execution. You see, that was their attempt to protect the holiness of the earthly temple. Well, if that was the case of an earthly structure made with human hands, how much more does God protect his own temple that he has sanctified, the temple made with living stones? You see, God will destroy anyone who seeks to destroy his church. But then Paul, again, reminds his readers of who they are, he says, you are that temple. You are that temple. He reminds them of who they are in Christ Jesus. Now, it's interesting that Paul doesn't say, make yourself that temple. It's interesting that Paul doesn't say, make yourself holy. He says, no, you are holy. You are the temple. Now act like it. And this is what I think he'll go on to say using another metaphor in chapter 5, using this idea of leaven how a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And Paul says, get rid of the leaven because it's going to corrupt the church. But notice what he says there in, in chapter 5, verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been, has been sacrificed. 
But Paul, even in the same thing there, he doesn't say, now make yourself unleavened. He says, no, you are. So get rid of the leaven. Same thing here. He says, you are the temple. You are holy. So don't let these perverting influences come into the church. Get rid of it. Be consistent with who you are in Christ Jesus. As we conclude this passage today, considering how God will evaluate the lasting value and work of the ministers who, who serve as his co-laborers to build his church, may God bless this congregation, this particular manifestation of the body of Christ. May he bless it with continued growth. And may the materials that are used be those of gold and silver and precious stones built upon the foundation of Christ and him crucified. And may we, as his people, come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. May it be true that we ourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, the church's one foundation. Amen? Let's give thanks.